Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we're beginning a new mini-series from our year-long study of the Gospel of Matthew that we're calling Christian in a Good Way. So let's head over to Pastor Tim as he sets the stage for our new series. are going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time, we are, uh, over the course of 2022, we are working through one of the biographies on the life of Jesus uh, as told by his disciple Matthew. And so uh, we're just kind of working passage by passage, sometimes line by line through the gospel of Matthew, uh, really trying to get at um, who is Jesus uh, in context. Like, what was he about um, because if we didn't know how they understood him and what he was about and how they understood that, uh, we may accidentally, in our pursuit to follow Jesus, actually miss out on what he, who he is to us too. So uh, we are just working our way through Matthew. We are, we are at the spot in Matthew, kind of right in the well, beginning slash middle of Jesus' uh, most famous sermon, a sermon on the, what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and so we've been working through, uh, over the last few weeks, chapter 5 of Matthew, um, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, chapter 5 is uh, five examples of how the world of Jesus had misinterpreted their Bibles. So Jesus gives five examples. Uh, in the refrain, he comes back to again and again is, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Uh, so you heard it said, then he quotes an Old Testament passage, but I tell you. And uh, we talked about how the, in the world of Jesus, what they were doing, try to imagine this, um, but they were, there were people in his world that were taking the scripture and they were uh, quoting the scripture, but they were so narrowly defining or interpreting that passage so that it didn't apply to them. So that they could say things like, well, the, the law says don't murder, but I haven't murdered anyone, so I'm kind of okay. Even though you, they're walking around like on a low boil of rage. As long as I didn't break the command, I'm fine. And what Jesus says is, actually in doing that, you've abolished the, the law. You've missed the point. And what I've come, Jesus said, to do is to fulfill the law, to show you what it looks like properly interpreted. So that's where we've been. Um, we spent three weeks exploring that. Uh, last week, we looked at just um, one kind of case study on how this applies to one issue, um, that issue being divorce. Um, and we pulled a, the section of, uh, of Matthew where Jesus speaks on divorce, that section that gets used so often to do so much uh, that I don't think was the intention of Jesus. Um, but this morning, what I want to do is uh, as I want to give you the last example in chapter 5. Well, I want to explore that together. And this one's going to kind of segue between chapter 5 and chapter 6. So uh, this last example, uh, so if chapter 5 is how you can misinterpret the Bible, chapter 6 is going to be people who have interpreted the Bible correctly maybe, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. So we are now going to kind of transition, and we'll use this passage to transition it to transition us. Um, and I think if there's any section of the Sermon on the Mount that we as a Christian culture, the American Christian culture, have to wrestle with, it's this one. Um, the refrain that's going to come up again and again in chapter 6 is this refrain, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Uh, and it, 
and as you know, um, if you've been paying attention at all, we Christians have a bit of a PR problem, right? We have uh, the one thing Jesus is the most critical of, the, the thing Jesus calls out the most is hypocrisy. More than anything else, Jesus calls out hypocrisy. And yet in study after study and poll after poll, the very thing that we Christians get accused of by those who don't believe, um, don't believe in Jesus, the thing we get accused of is they're hypocrites, why don't we go to church? Well, they're hypocrites. The church is filled with hypocrites. So what I want to try to explore beginning today and over the next several weeks is what is our path forward? How do we as Christians, um, we call this the section of Matthew, Christian dot, dot, dot in a good way. Um, how do we become the kinds of people who when we show up to school, when we show up to uh, work, when we show up to our neighborhoods, people will describe us and they'll say like, oh yeah, yeah, um, so-and-so is a Christian. But, but like in a good way, right? And you've, you've heard that done. Um, I, I, uh, so um, I love how Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard talks about this next section on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, by the way, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, one of my favorite theologians, my wife and I were debating naming our child Soren back and it was on our list. Um, I, love the, I love this philosopher. He says this, he says, if you mean by Christian what the Sermon on the Mount says about being a Christian, then in any given time in history, there might be four or five such persons who would have the right to call themselves Christians. Now, I think he may be a bit too harsh on us, but uh, I think his point also stands. Um, if, if we actually apply what Jesus said to be, what it means to be a Christian from the Sermon on the Mount to our lives, uh, it changes how we live our lives. And so I want to look at how do we become those kinds of people. And to get at that, let's pick up where we left off, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. This is the last example of the you heard it said, but I tell you section. Verse 43, you've heard it said, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that, non-believers do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's how Jesus wraps up that section. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you ever read a line of Jesus and you think, really, Jesus, that, that's um, the, the Son of God saying to us, you know, just, just be perfect, kind of like I do it. Like, just... Just be perfect like me. The only sinless human being in history. Just do it like that. No big deal. Um, are you glad Jesus has such low standards for humanity? Just, just be perfect. I imagine the disciples. Like Peter's got his clipboard. And he's like taking notes. because He's like, I might have to write this down someday. And he's like, I got to take notes on this. So, um, boss, uh, you, you say be perfect. But um, what does that look like? And then Jesus is like, you know, just be perfect. Like, uh. Um, like don't sin. Like that's like a starting spot. I need you to, uh, you give away all your possessions to the poor. That's, that's easy enough. Uh, I want you to be humble and kind and filled with grace. But at the same time, there's a lot of problems in the world. So have a spine, have a backbone. So be completely loving and humble, but also don't be spineless. Uh, and you know, every once in a while, 
Every once in a while, they, they love this. Uh, you got to do like a thing, like walk on water. They love that. Uh, they uh, change water into wine. That one's great. Uh, and in the end, just die for the sins of humanity. <laughs> oh, you got to come back at the end. You got to rise again. Like, just be perfect like me. This is, you read something like this and you think, Jesus, really? Like, what? What? Uh, I, this would be a bit like if I was in, um, in the backyard with my son, Abram, and we're throwing the football and I'm trying to teach my boy. By the way, he's wearing a Stafford jersey today. I'm so proud. Um, I'm trying to teach him how to throw football. And I say to him, I say to him, you know, I just want you to throw it as hard as Matthew Stafford. Just throw it like Matthew Stafford. Not super hard. The, the greatest quarterback, probably the greatest quarterback, uh, even though he broke my heart. Um, I'm having like a weird day where it's like, do I root for him or do I not? <laughs> Just throw it like Matthew Stafford. If I said that to my son, just throw it as hard as Matthew Stafford. Like that's, it feels like, okay, th- no, like that's not helpful. And if, if, there's, if that's not helpful, then Jesus, Jesus saying just be perfect like God's perfect, not helpful, not helpful. And uh, doesn't it feel like uh, this ridiculously high bar that Jesus seems to set uh, is, it almost can lead us to give up before even trying like, it almost has the reverse effect. Jesus is saying, be perfect. And for someone like me, I look at myself in the mirror and I think, well, I know, I, I, I don't know about you, but I know I'm not perfect, right? Like, you, actually, I do know about you. You're not perfect, right? Like, you know that's true about you. And so we look in the mirror and think, I know I'm not perfect. I'll never be perfect. I've failed before. No matter, I can get better, but I will continue to fail. I'm not perfect. I've never been perfect. And so when Jesus says to be perfect, why even bother? Why even try? There, I can never be enough. And by the way, isn't that one of our big issues right now? So many of us, like this, think, this thinking of like, I am not enough. I was, uh, I was just talking to the first service and I just bumped into um, the Lancet came out with a study, a new study on the opioid crisis. And uh, just the numbers have, are like, if you follow um, drugs, uh, prescription drugs, like the numbers have skyrocketed in recent years. And, uh, and for so many, I think you can trace that right back to, well, I'm not enough. I'm not enough. Uh, like, isn't that the thing that we're all, like, so Jesus saying be perfect, like that, Jesus is not super helpful because um, I already feel like I'm not good enough. Uh, and then we place all these expectations on ourselves, right? We, we, uh, we take the pictures of our family on the beach on the vacation, knowing that five minutes before that picture, the kids were a nightmare, but we, fought, we got the picture, we'll throw that out on social media, and then the rest of us look at it and say, well, why can't our family be like that? Look how happy they are. Everyone's, look how happy they are. Uh, don't look too close or the kids have red eyes because they've been yelling, but like, they look so happy. Like we, can, we can pull our, these expectations on ourselves. Or you look at the person who's climbed the corporate ladder and you say, well, why, why can't I do that? I just got to work harder. I got to try a little bit more at work. But then you have the parenting experts who say, yeah, but you want to make sure you're spending quality time with the kids. And so now if I spend quality time with the kids, I have to sacrifice at work. But if I sacrifice at work, I can't, if, I, if I work hard, I can't spend quality time with the kids. And so you have all of these expectations and all, now a thousand different voices saying, just do this, go on this diet, drink this green juice and you'll be healthy. Do, do this. And it's not helpful. And Jesus saying, just, yeah, but just, just be perfect. It can just feel like another check on the somebody else to let down checklist. Only this one to let down is God. Like, it, what do we do with this? Now, um, 
If you scour church tradition and you look at how people have tried to wrestle with this verse, uh, things become, actually, it's, it's kind of fun. I, I find it fun. Watching the theological gymnastics people do to make sense of this verse. Because what I, I've yet to hear any credible theologian try to make the argument that we can be perfect. Right? Uh, we all know the line, or all, theologians all know the line that um, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, according to Paul, one of the first Christians. So we, we all have sinned, so we can't be perfect, but yet Jesus says to be perfect, so what do we do with that? Some of the theological, if you just like Google, like what did Jesus mean when he said be perfect? Some of the things you'll, dis, you'll discover in that, um, just I find them pretty interesting. One of them is, well, check out this like theological gymnastics. Well, if you follow Jesus close enough and he's perfect and you're close enough to Jesus, his perfection will kind of like spill over onto you. Which sounds really good, except for any of us who have ever tried to get into something like running, right? You're like, I'm going to go on Instagram and follow all the runners so they'll give me the tips to run. It doesn't work, does it? Just because they love running doesn't mean you love running. They're, they're like, when they talk about the runner's high, you're thinking, yeah, but I've never gotten high off that thing. Like, I, I have run and run and run and run. And just because I'm following them and they are excited about running doesn't make me excited. And so that logically doesn't make so much sense. Uh, another one um, that I've seen uh, trying to make this argument that what Jesus is doing here, especially like business-minded people, uh, what Jesus is doing here is he's setting an aspirational goal. Um, what, what I was taught was a, a BHAG. You know what the BHAG, the Jim Collins big, hairy, audacious goals. So Jesus didn't really mean be perfect. He's just setting this giant goal in front of his disciples and saying, I want you to shoot for the moon. Uh, like Jesus is like Coach Taylor on Friday Night Lights, just like inspiring us, knowing that we may lose the game, but we're going to go in and we're going we're gonna to give it our all, leave it all on the field. Except for it doesn't seem like that's what he's saying here. Uh, the, the, the other one I've seen, I actually heard someone say this to me. Um, that I've heard someone try to make the case that when Jesus said be perfect, he absolutely meant what he said. He absolutely meant be perfect. And, uh, and then they began to share their story about how they had this like, broken past, but then they found Jesus, and now they haven't sinned since. since. He's transformed their lives. They've never messed up again. To which I had to remind them that is delusional a sin? Like, I, like I'm the most humble person. Uh, like, okay. Uh, now, to make matters even more confusing, just kind of twisting up this, like getting behind this passage, because you got to dare ask the questions about the passage. You have to dare ask the right questions. Um, so to ask a, another set of questions, this is number five of five examples in which Jesus quotes the Old Testament. You've heard it said, but I tell you. This is example number five. Now, in the first four examples, Jesus will say, you've heard it said, quotes the Old Testament, and then he'll say, but I tell you, and kind of offers a, a, a true interpretation of what was said. Now, where this breaks down is in this particular passage, because when Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, Without asking the questions, you begin to think, well, did, did they, does, this, does the Old Testament say that? And the truth is, no. The Old Testament never, nowhere, nobody says to hate your enemy. It's not in there. 
It's not, the, the Old Testament does say, love your neighbor, but it never says, hate your enemy. So what is Jesus doing here? What's he quoting? Why does Jesus say, be perfect? Now, I want to make the case this morning that uh, this is a classic example of why it's important to read Jesus in context. If we miss what Jesus is doing here, if we don't put Jesus in context, a, a line as simple as be perfect, a, a line as seemingly like non-harmful as be perfect can sink into our psychology and do some significant spiritual damage. What was Jesus getting at when he said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect? Let's see if we can figure out what's going on here. Um, now, uh, when, when doing this work, uh, one of the places to, to ask is, is to look at, is to ask the question, is Jesus quoting anything here? Uh, what are the languages? I actually think language in this one helps. Um, now, stay with me on, on this a minute. Uh, the, the Old Testament is predominantly written in Hebrew, the Hebrew language. Uh, the, there's portions of the, God, uh, or the book of Daniel that are written in Aramaic, but the majority is in the Hebrew language. And the New Testament, the majority is in the Greek language. So what can happen is when someone in the New Testament is quoting the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, that there isn't a great Greek word for the Hebrew idea. Does that make sense? Um, I, uh, my example in the first service was the word, uh, for those of you who know the Greek, who know any Dutch, the word sputten. You know the word sputten? It's like this word that I was told like a joke about Jesus was inappropriate, but there's not a great way to say it. It's not blasphemy necessarily, but it's making light of something sacred. We don't have a great word. So the word in the Dutch is the word sputten. Um, or the one that I heard growing up was the word feast. You know the word feast? Feast is like, it's dirty, it's, it, but it's like, I think it shares a root with the word feces, but it's not, it's not feces, but it's like worse than dirty. Uh, and so what you recognize if you've learned a second language, um, I'm sure this is true for like Spanish, um, you come and there's, there's not a word for the concept that exists in your culture. Now we translate it a certain way, but there's not a great word for that. So one of the questions here is, to, is, is Jesus quoting anything from the Hebrew when he says, be perfect, therefore, as God is perfect? And the answer to that is yes. Jesus is quoting something. Let me show you what he's quoting. If you uh, want to turn there, it's Leviticus 19, chapter 1. Jesus, I, I know not super shocking. We all walk around quoting Leviticus. Jesus quoting Leviticus, chapter 19. The Lord said to Moses... Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be what? Holy. Not perfect. Holy. Not, now, those are two very different ideas, are they not? Be holy as your Father is holy. Not be perfect. Uh, now, when we think perfect, by the way, the Greeks... Uh, they have a word for perfect. The Greek philosophers think about perfect. There is no Hebrew idea for perfect. Perfect is a static state. Perfect can't get more perfecter. So um, the Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden, we'll often say the Garden of Eden was perfect. But the Bible never says the Garden of Eden was perfect. The Bible says that the Garden of Eden was good. Good leaves room for, for improvement. Good leaves room for, like, God and humans to partner together to take it somewhere. Um, how about this, for example? Uh, imagine 
the perfect beach. Okay, imagine the perfect beach. Those of you who like water, remember the sun? Sun's out. Um, there's that white sand, but it doesn't burn your feet. Uh, there's a breeze, but it's not hot or, or cold. It's just like the perfect breeze. Uh, it's, there's palm trees in just enough shade. So if you like the sun, the shade's not on you. But if you don't like the sun, you got the shade, like the perfect beach. Now, imagine that uh, there is another palm tree that gets planted on your perfect beach. Is your perfect beach still perfect? No. Either it wasn't perfect before, or now you added a new palm tree and now it's not perfect. But perfect is a static state. If something changes, if you add a palm tree, it's no longer perfect. Now, we would say, well, the word perfect is static. When, if Jesus says, be perfect as your father is perfect, it's some like, get to this spot at the end of the race. But be holy is a totally different idea. The word holy, the Hebrew word, is the word kadosh. Some of you, some of you want to say the word kadosh. Say kadosh. Kadosh. In my mind, it's like that sound when you take a ball and you go, kadosh. Kadosh, uh, holy. To be holy, kadosh, literally means to be set apart, to be different, to be set apart or to be different. Now, um, do do you see how these are different ideas, by the way? To be set apart and different is different than being perfect. And so to make it, to to further like show the, the brilliance of what Jesus is doing here. So he takes this, be perfect as God is perfect, or be holy as God is holy. This quote from Leviticus. But he links it to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, turns out that that phrase, love your neighbor, also is rooted in Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, 18 says this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. So Jesus says... Be holy as God is holy. And then he says, and love your neighbor. And some of you are saying, and hate your enemy. But so he, it seems that what Jesus is doing is he's offering a commentary on Leviticus chapter 19 and how to interpret it. Now, here's where things get interesting in my mind. Here's where things get interesting. Jesus misquotes Leviticus 19. Jesus adds, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Why does Jesus misquote the second half of Leviticus 19? What is going on here? For years, uh, we've asked that question and we didn't know the answer. There was great guesses, but for years, Christians have asked the question, why does Jesus misquote Leviticus 19? And then we found out why. Literally, the answer, about 70 years ago, we found, we, we dug it up. Literally, it was buried uh, in a, what was known as a, uh, well, let me show you where it was buried. Uh, this is right outside. Is there a map in there, maybe? Maybe not. Um, now there is, all right. So this is a city called uh, Qumran. It's a, not really a city. It's a tiny little village right outside the Dead Sea. Uh, the city of Qumran, found, we found out, there was a group of people who lived there known as the Essenes. The Essenes. Uh, the Essenes were a group of priests who decided that the world had gone so corrupt, the world had gotten so bad, that they were going to move away from everyone else and they were going to live amongst each other as a group of people in this little community. Now, Uh, Let me see the next slide. In 
the 19, I was born in the 1900s, say that, uh, so 1950s, uh, they found in this cave first, and now several in other caves, they found it was a, a, a shepherd boy was throwing rocks trying to find his sheep that got lost, and as he threw a rock, he heard a and they discovered inside uh, one of the tombs, or one of the one of the caves, they decide what was essentially, they believe, to be a scripture burial ground. The Essenes apparently would spend their days copying the scripture texts, and when they made a mistake, or if they made a mistake, they would take that scripture, and instead of, um, you don't just burn the scripture, you, you can't just throw away the scripture, so what they would do is they would bury the scripture in essentially a scripture burial ground, because somebody uh, put a dot on an eye that they shouldn't have put on, or like they made a mistake. And so you have this burial ground that we discovered. Now inside uh, what, by the way, this is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, inside the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found a copy of every book of the Old Testament, with the exception of one. And we found a couple of other things. The most interesting discovery was a code of conduct for the Essenes. How we are to live together. How we understand these books. So we found this discovery, and out of it, we learned a ton about what it meant to be, uh, to, to be alive at the time of Jesus. Verified a lot of the scriptures. Uh, in fact, many will argue, I'm one of them, that John the Baptist must have spent time with the Essenes. He's baptizing right where they're doing mikvah, ritual cleansing. Uh, he, he speaks a lot like the Essenes. He comes from a priestly family like the Essenes. Uh, so if John the Baptist is linked somehow with the Essenes, Jesus is at least familiar with the Essenes. Now, when you look at the Community Code of Conduct book, what you discover is more than anything else, the Essenes were trying to figure out how do we be good priests? How do we do it? And they took this line of Leviticus 19, love your neighbor, and they said, okay, we, how do we love our neighbor and be holy at the same time? How do we do this? Their solution was, we'll move off into the desert, and we'll love each other well. We will be what they called children of light. We'll be the children of light. They, everyone else, will be children of darkness. You find uh, writing after writing, um, for example, I think I have one quote. Um, but you find this, this kind of phrase come up again and again. We are to love the children of light and hate the children of darkness. Love the children of light and hate the children of darkness. Why? Because God says to be kadosh. God, kadosh. God says to be holy, to be separate. So the way we are to be separate, they said, was we have to separate ourselves. We are called to be priests separated from the world. To which Jesus apparently says, no, you're not. You're not separated from the world. You are priests separated for the world. And that's a key distinctive. Now, what's a priest? Let me run through the job description of a priest as quick as we can. Job description of a priest. The book of Leviticus is essentially a job description for the priest. Chapter 19 being like the, the culmination of the job description. But there's really four Jobs of a priest. Job number one of a priest is to put God on display. Uh, so it's why they wore different clothes. It's why they have tassels. It's why they leave the, their sideburns curly and grown out. We have to put God on display for the world so that when the world sees us, they ask the question. And then in our explanation of all this, let me tell you about the ephod. And, and in the explanation, you put God on display. That's the first job. Second job of a priest 
is to intercede, uh, or sorry, to help people reconcile to God. This is uh, the idea behind the sacrificial system. Understand that the sacrificial system wasn't because God needed people to kill sheep or whatever. That that's not the heart of the, God himself says, that's not why I want the sacrificial system. The system was so that we, who are like tactile people, could bring our gift and know that we could walk away forgiven. That we, uh, we, if we messed up, if we broke something, if we, we, we hurt someone, we could, with a clean heart, go to God and say, God, I'm sorry, and we could then walk away forgiven. Every other God of, their, of the day, every other God of the day, or of the region at least, demanded a child to be sacrificed. God says no. So second thing was you help people reconcile to God. Job number three is you intercede on behalf of others. So um, brother and sister are fighting over politics. Your job is to come in between and help them love each other and find higher purpose. Uh, a two, two groups of people cannot see each other as human. Your job is to remind them of their shared humanity. Job number four, distribute resources to those in need. Um, because the health of a community is always, in, according to God, the health of a community is always judged on how we care for the weakest and the most vulnerable. So how do we do? And so you would give what they refer to as a tie, a temple tax, and a portion of it would go to the priest and everything else. If the priest, hopefully the priest was somebody moral, they would take what they need to live and the rest of it, they would figure out how do we care for the needs of our community. That's the job of the priest. The priest is supposed to stand in the gap between God and the community, reflecting the community to God and God to the people. Raising the question, what happens when a whole group of priests decide that the world is so bad, so broken, that we need to move away? Not separated from, for the world, but separated from the world. Here's what Jesus says. Pull it together. Jesus says, notice, this is, I find this brilliant. Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So Jesus quotes Leviticus 19, then he quotes the common Essene understanding of it. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. You've heard that. You've heard the Essenes say that. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. What was the language they used to describe themselves? We are children of light or there are children of darkness. Jesus reminds them that all of us are children of our Father. You don't get to decide who's good and who's bad, who's lovable and who's not lovable. Now, then he says this, be holy, therefore, as your heavenly father is holy. Be holy as God is holy. And how is God holy? Well, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. So God makes a decision. I'm letting, I, everyone gets access to this. Everyone gets access to the rain. See the, the brilliance of what Jesus is saying? Be priests. Be priests, be good news people, not separated from the world, but separated for the world on behalf of the needs of our world. Now, raising the question, and this is the question you're asking right now. I can read your eyes. Who cares? <laughs> Who does? Who cares? Interesting stuff. Um, it, you know, interesting Bible study. Um, Jesus is a brilliant teacher, but who honestly cares, uh, especially when um, 
we have in our world and you have in your world what's going on in your world. I'm, at this point in any sermon, uh, I'm thinking what you're probably thinking, which is I need an example. I need some flesh and blood. Like this is, I have too much going on in my actual life that I need like, give me some grip, give me some handles on this thing. I mean, if the numbers from the New York Times report this morning or the Lancet report, if the numbers of opioid addiction are as high as they are, there's a almost certain probability, almost certainty that there's at least one, if not multiple people here who are battling an addiction. Um, and it's a prescription pill addiction. It's not like you signed up for this. You had a foot injury and you got a prescription and you didn't know it was, and now you're just trying to hold it together while also like showing up to work and you're battling it. Like if this doesn't apply to you, who cares? Um, if this doesn't, to the, to, the, to the couple who wants to be a Christian, who want to do it the, the right way, they want to be Christians, and yet they're, they're a couple, they're not married, they're trying to figure it out. If this doesn't give you something to stand on, who cares? Like, what, what good is it? To the, to the young person who battles trying to figure out, like, how do I stay pure and single, and yet, like, like how do I do this? How do I, um, how do I do it? Uh, to the, to the girl who looks in the mirror and thinks, I don't like how I look. Who cares? What do we do with something like this? Let me give you a story that um, I, I first heard the story that uh, I remember hearing the story and thinking, okay, that says everything I needed to say. Um, uh, I first heard it from one of my, uh, one of my favorite speakers. His name, is a guy, his name is Tony Campolo. And it's an older story now, but he tells a story of how years ago, he was speaking at a conference in Hawaii and he had gotten to the conference in Honolulu and uh, he was jet lagged. So he shows up and he tries to go to bed because the conference is the next day. But as he gets, gets into his hotel room and checks in and he's laying in his bed, he realizes very quickly, I'm never going to fall asleep. Like I'm, if, if you've been jet lagged, like, like I can't fall asleep. So he can either do the game of, uh, I will just keep looking at the, the alarm clock uh, and emptying my bladder, right? Like until I, maybe I'll fall asleep, I'll keep playing that game. Or you know what, I'll just give in, I'm jet lagged, I'm probably not gonna go to sleep, let's get the day going early and maybe tomorrow I'll sleep. So he decides uh, option B and he goes for a walk looking for some place that's open that he can kind of go hang out at. And he sees a restaurant slash bar at about um, three in the morning. And he goes inside, and inside the restaurant, he meets this guy on the other side who's bartender slash chef uh, at this place, and he uh, finds out that this guy's name is Harry. And so he begins talking to Harry, and uh, Harry's in, you know, talking about the local scene and like, meets the guy, and, and he describes this place as like, exactly what you would think a bar open at three in the morning is like. Like, this is where I am. And then at 3.30 on the dot, in walks this group of eight loud dirty, homeless women. And, uh, and all of a sudden now the, the energy in the room shifts and he's like, they sit down and it went from this quiet place to this loud place as they're telling stories and laughing uh, and, and like they're, they're clearly there. He overhears one of the ladies say to the rest of the room, um, hey, uh, tomorrow is my birthday. I'm gonna be 39 years old. Tomorrow's my birthday. Uh, to which her friend says back to her, uh, who cares? Why are you telling us this? What, what, do you want, what do you want from me? You want a birthday party? You want me to sing happy birthday? You want me to bake you a cake? Why are you telling me? We don't have homes. What are you telling me for? 
come on, she says. Just like, I, 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 why do you have to be so mean? I'm not telling you you have to bake a cake. I'm not, like, I, come on, I've never had a birthday party in my whole adult life. I'm not expecting a birthday party. I was just telling you, that's all. Like, I was just telling you, tomorrow's my birthday. Um, you don't have to be so mean about it. An hour or so later, the women get up and they leave. And uh, Tony is sitting back with, with Harry at this bar. And he says, hey, uh, do they come in here every night? And Harry's like, yep, uh, 3.30 on the dot, every single night, 3.30 on the dot. And he said, well, I overheard the one. Did you, the, she was saying it's her birthday. What's her name? Do you know her name? And he goes, oh, yeah, that's Agnes. Agnes is, like, she's, she is nice and she is kind, but... The world isn't very nice and kind to her. Her friends are not very nice to her. And he says, well, did you overhear her say tomorrow is her birthday? I have an idea, he said. Harry, what if we throw her a birthday party? And Harry says, I think that's a great idea. So the next night... um, at 2.30 in the morning, Tony comes back with streamers and the noisemakers and party hats and decorations and balloons, and they turn this like bar, kind of greasy spoon restaurant into a full-on birthday party, and they uh, go around the streets inviting anyone who's outside, uh, so like the entire homeless community of, of uh, Hawaii are in this little bar, and at 3.30 on the dot... The door opens and in walk eight homeless women. And everyone says, happy birthday, Agnes. And then they begin singing, happy birthday to you. They begin singing and Agnes at first like just is taken back by it. And uh, then she like slowly begins, like mouth open and then slowly begins crying. And out comes Harry with the cake and he's got this big old cake and he sets it in front of her. And now she's like full on sobbing. And after letting that go on for a little bit, he says, hey, Agnes, cut the cake. We want cake. Cut the cake. <laughs> and she says, um, would, would it be okay? Uh, I mean, I guess what I want to ask is, is it, do you think it would, just say it, he says, okay, I would it be okay if I don't cut the cake? I, my mom lives right down the street. Um, she hasn't been proud of me in a long time, and I would love to show her the cake and tell her about the party. I would love her to be here. She would be so proud of this. Is it okay if I don't cut the cake? Harry says, it's your cake. And with that, she leaves. And uh, there's silence in the room. And, uh, and Tony's like, I gotta break the silence because it's like, now what do we do? And so Tony says, hey, how about we, we pray? And so he leads this group of homeless people in this prayer, and essentially it's something along the lines of, God, would you remind Agnes that she's worth something? Lord, would you remind her of her beauty and her worth in your eyes? Lord, would you help her feel loved? Whatever the prayer was. And then after the, he says, amen, Harry leans over to Tony and says, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? <laughs> To which Tony looked at the man and said, the way he tells the story, he's like, I've had, for the first time, I've had the perfect words to say. He says, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for homeless women at 3.30 in the morning. To which Harry said, nah, 
No, you're not. Because if that church existed, I would even go to church. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all? Um, The New Testament followers of Jesus describe Christians as priests. We are all priests, the kingdom of priests. To be a priest, we have an option. We can be like the Essenes and say that we are separated from the world. Let's, let's cheer each other on. Let's try to cheer each other to be better people, holy people, good people. That's an option. But Jesus opens up a bigger option. We can see ourselves as separated for the world. To be holy, to show our world what God is like. The priests have four jobs. If you're a Christian, by the way, the bar is really high. Bar is really high. But I think we need a high bar. For, the, for, for those of us who are actually wrestling with real issues, we need not just to be reminded of what we should do, but we need to be reminded of why we should do it. The bar is high. Um, uh, to be a priest, there's four components. Job number one, to put God on display. Who in your life right now needs God to be put on display? Do you have somebody? Um, what does it look like? I was talking to somebody that um, they did a block party in their neighborhood and then after the block party, all their neighbors came and they're trying to figure out how do we stay good news to our neighborhood after this block party? And so somebody came up with the idea of, of uh, doing a 2020 challenge for anyone who wanted to be in on it. The way they described it was everyone who wanted could bring $20 and 20 ideas. And so the neighbors would gather. I don't know how often they do this, but they bring $20 and 20 ideas. And then together they try to figure out what's the best idea that they all kind of agree on. And then they take those, all that money, $20 each, whoever came, they take that money and they'll give it to somebody in their neighborhood who needs to be blessed. So um, they were telling me that one, at one time they, they helped somebody with their roof that needed like a repair on their roof. And it was just neighbors coming together to be God to their neighbor. Um, put God on display, job number one. Um, I, uh, I, when I was in college at Hope, there was a group of girls that, whose sorority decided that what they would do was to, to be missional in their sorority. They said, we want to love Jesus. And, and so what they decided to do was go to the, the Warm Friend, which is a retirement home in Holland. And they went in and they did full mani-pedis to all the retired women. I thought it was brilliant. I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. What does it look like to put God on display? Um, job number two, help people reconcile to God. Is there anybody in your life who doesn't feel very worthwhile or good? Is there anybody in your life who needs you to remind them that God still loves them? Um, one of the most powerful moments of, of a Sunday morning for me is the benediction, being able to say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Um, because I just find that for so many of us, we, we don't hear often enough that God wants to bless us. Uh, job number three, for those of us who say yes to Jesus, is we intercede on behalf of others. Is there anyone in your life that, you, you hear us talk about this a lot, that needs to be reminded that our shared life in Jesus is bigger than our disagreements around politics? So actually, I think if we get that one right, we can have very animated debates with one another about the right course of action. So the secret, I, I don't think, is to move forward and, and just like all pretend like the issues aren't out there. Aren't, aren't out there, but rather to say, okay, we believe in Jesus. Now, now let's talk about the problems of our world and how we solve them. And then job number four, to distribute resources to those in need. 
Um, this is uh, the beauty of this first service at eight o'clock. I was sharing this as our elders and deacons were meeting to try to figure out how, who in our community is in need, um, physically with financial stuff or spiritually. Like who's in need? How do we love them? How do we be good news to them? Be holy as God is holy. It's not perfect. Be holy as God is holy. Um, this morning we're gonna we'll wrap with communion, and um, I think it's a I think it's an appropriate way to wrap this. Uh, Jesus gathers with his disciples um, who some of them will, will betray him. Uh, only one of them will stay for the, like, will actually make their way to the cross. These guys are not perfect. And yet uh, Jesus reminds them in this moment that they, they are holy, that they are called to be set apart to look a certain way in their world. They're not perfect, but they're holy. Uh, so when we take communion, we, we often talk about how there's three meanings behind uh, what we are doing here. Meaning number one is we take this in to commune or as a community together and with God. So this is an opportunity for us as the church to be reminded that, um, that we are a, there's a reason why the early church called each other brother and sister. We are family in Christ. Uh, the second reason they said is in remembrance of what Jesus did. Uh, that this isn't just about us loving each other, but Jesus actually, um, there was actual sacrifice. And so we remember that what Jesus gave for us is very precious, and uh, we should not take this lightly. And the third, they talk about a, a, a remembrance of hope, of hope, that we take just, I mean, we're going to do a little bit of bread and some juice, and uh, it's just bread and some juice, and yet, at the same time, we take this as a reminder that uh, if we take the scripture seriously, there will be a day when all tribes, language, people, and nations come together around a great banquet table together. And so we practice now for our future. And so uh, whatever meaning you have to grab this morning, um, if you have to invite Jesus, you feel disconnected and you need to reestablish communion, um, or if you feel uh, that you need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he said is true, or you need some hope. We want to invite you forward. Um, now, the way we do it here is we have four stations in the front. Uh, the very two on the end have a gluten-free option. Um, the others have the little, the little cups, if you prefer those, or you will take the other and dip it into the cup. And then there's also a station in the back, um, uh, just a gluten-free station in the back. And then uh, Scott... Scott over here will be um, roaming, so if you uh, would prefer to have uh, Scott come over and take communion with you or serve you communion, um, just raise your hand as he walks by and he'll do so. Um, but would you join me in a word of prayer? Uh, Lord, we, uh, Lord, we recognize that something in our soul needs to hear stories of good news. Lord, we recognize that something in us shifts when we're reminded of the big vision you put before us. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to see ways that we can be set aside um, for our world to demonstrate who you are. And Lord, as we take communion this morning, we do so not as perfect people, but we do so recognizing that we are called to be holy people. And so Lord, help us to, to see how that plays out uh, in our lives. Jesus, we love you and we pray this in your name. And everybody said... As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. 
You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.